I'm Paul Stein from NIPTI. Today, I have the honor to speak with Rabbi Avremi Zippel about child sexual abuse. Rabbi Zippel has a very personal perspective on this topic because, as a child, he was sexually abused by a woman hired to be the family's nanny. This abuse went on for a decade. As an adult, Rabbi Zippel disclosed the abuse, and he testified at the criminal trial of his former nanny, where she was convicted. Since that time, Rabbi Zippel has used the experience of his victimization, disclosure, and the trial to educate the public and to become a powerful advocate for sexually abused children. I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you today, Rabbi. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to share. It's an honor to be here with you. Rabbi, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I currently live in Salt Lake City, which is where I was raised. My parents moved out here in 1992 to open a Chabad synagogue. I'm sure a lot of your colleagues out in New York might be familiar with your organization. I was raised here until I was 13. I was homeschooled. There wasn't much of a Jewish educational infrastructure in Salt Lake City back in the day. At 13, I left home, as a lot of kids in my situation in life do, to attend full-time schooling out of state. Spent a lot of time in, in the blessed shores of the state of New York. I moved back here with my wife in 2014 to work for the synagogue in which I was raised and continue to do so. It's an opportunity that I'm very grateful for. In uh, 2019, I added another facet to my life. I testified for the first time in the criminal proceedings against my abuser. I had reported the year before and, and things finally got to a preliminary hearing in 2019, at which point I testified. And as we'll talk about a little bit, the day that I testified, my story was publicized here in the local paper. We had made a very conscious decision instead of this kind of leaking out and getting out in bits and pieces and being defensive almost about the story, we decided to kind of tell it on our terms. So since 2019, I've had the opportunity to serve as an advocate, both in my community and the wider community. Here in town, I have the opportunity to serve in a number of ways on the Crime Victims Council here for the state of Utah and, and other opportunities. And it's become a very powerful part of my life, having kind of been through the entirety of the law enforcement and criminal justice system and having had that courtside seat and seeing, I guess, what worked and where things could have been more effective or, or just a better experience. It's, it's given me a lot of motivation to possibly make those changes for those that still need to walk that journey in their own life. Rabbi, let's turn now to the facts of the abuse. Would you tell us what happened and how the abuse began? So let's start with this. We were homeschooled as kids. And I know in 2022 with COVID and the world we live in, homeschooled has, has a number of different interpretations. My siblings and I were homeschooled. There was a bedroom in our house that was transformed into a classroom. And it's where we went to school three, four or five hours a day. Being that we were home all day, every day. My parents hired a babysitter, caregiver, nanny, whatever you want to call it. I think it all kind of leads to the same place, who was in the home nine to five every day to be another adult at home. My dad was off doing whatever rabbis do, and my mom was our primary educator, and she was meant to be the other adult around the house to you know pick up slack wherever needed. In 1999, just after my eighth birthday, our family's nanny began to sexually abuse me. Small incidents, you know, it, it happened once, and you know, shortly thereafter, it happened again. And that would become the nature of my childhood. This was something which would become a pretty recurring theme from eight till 13. You know, when I left home for those five years, I was seeing her Monday through Friday, every single week of every single year. When I left home, the incidents became a little bit more infrequent in the sense that I was no longer at home full time, but I was coming back multiple times a year for Jewish holidays, school breaks, 
family occasions, whatever it was. And so all in all, the incidents went on for almost exactly a decade. They stopped shortly after my 18th birthday. And, you know, that would kind of become the dominant theme beyond in my childhood, but really in every facet of my life, you know, picking up the pieces of that trauma and dealing with that and coping with that and trying to build a life in my own sense, you know, with that being such a powerful theme, that became something which I would have to and, and continue to grapple with forever. Rabbi, would you tell us a little bit about the abuser? For example, how old she was? Was, was she recommended to your family? If you know, because I assume that as a kid, you weren't involved in the hiring process. I was seven when she was hired, so no one really asked my opinion. Right. I would know. So she was a woman in, at that point in her, in her early 50s, a mother of three, a career in childcare. She was originally from Tonga, which is in the South Pacific Islands. She had come to the United States, I believe it was in the 1970s, I want to say. Obviously, this is kind of a thought process that my parents and, and we as a family have rehashed, you know, a million times, right? You know, why did we hire her? Were there red flags? Could this have been avoided? I want to say this for the record. That's a ridiculous thought process to go through, I think. I think that it's a ridiculous road to go down. I would have hired her for my kids, you know, checked every box, warm and caring and genuine. And, you know, she quickly became part of the family. This was not some 20-year-old trying to fill in some hours in a part-time capacity while she was in school. And, you know, there was concern about inappropriate behavior. This is someone who had worked in childcare for two decades at that point, came highly recommended, highly recommended, and immediately became part of our family. And, and I'll kind of, you know, digress here just for a moment. Obviously, that becomes such an important component in the process of everyone dealing with this, you know, so we loved her and we welcomed her into the family for a decade. What does that make us? Does that make us ignorant? Does that make us that we missed warning signs? And I'm a firm believer that no, it means that we were played by a predator. That doesn't mandate us, you know, going back and, and feeling regretful about thought processes that were developed over, you know, a dozen or so years, but no, she was, you know, she was a, she was a rock star babysitter. I'll say that, you know, and she came highly recommended and for good reason. You make a great point here, Rabbi, that we can't tell just by looking at a person, whether or not they are a child abuser. And I'm sure we've all seen in our work and certainly in the news accounts of seemingly trustworthy people who turn out to be predators. But looking back at your abuse before it started, was there any grooming that she did where she tried to normalize or desensitize you to the abuse that she eventually subjected you to? So I love this question because I think for me, it gives me the opportunity to kind of look back at the totality of my therapeutic experience. So, you know, the answers to these questions are painful realities and recognitions that have kind of been developed in six years of pretty intensive therapy. So obviously the answer is yes. And I think this is such a crucial point of the conversation because I think that when the general population thinks about grooming, we think about candies and cupcakes and video games. And we think about, you know, physical gifts that perpetrators give to children to try and buy their silence. And I think we really need to think about grooming differently. Grooming is about normalization. Grooming is about normalizing behaviors that isolate a child from their support system. And grooming is about creating wedges between the child and their parents, the child and their teachers, the child and the support structures, which they should normally have. So looking back, that absolutely happened, you know, and there were no cupcakes or cookies or video games in my case. My abuser was someone who was very touchy. And I don't mean that in an inappropriate sense. You know, she was a hugger and she was dealing with small children, right? You know, she was very physically affectionate. In our household, we are Orthodox Jews. 
there is a certain age at which point there is no intentional physical contact between even children, you know, boys and women who are not part of the immediate family or girls and men who are not part of the immediate family. And looking back, you know, I think we all realize that my abuser normalized physical touch that would have been questionable Would my parents have found out about it, but it wouldn't have been inappropriate. It wasn't illegal touching. It was massaging and it was caressing and it was a lot of touching that for the household that we were in would have raised some eyebrows, but would someone have found out about it? You know, it wouldn't have been grounds for termination or for police report, which I think is really the prototypical grooming, right? You know, grooming really is about taking gray area behaviors and saying, okay, how far can I push the child to engage in these mildly inappropriate behaviors and see if they won't tell? And so looking back, I think, you know, the year or so, the 18 months leading up to when real inappropriate touching began, or, or let's call it illegal touching began, were really kind of dominated by a lot of those gray area behaviors to see how far she could take this. And so the abuse, it wasn't something that happened like day two, she was there and all right, and she dove in. It was making you feel that this was normal, making you feel that this was okay, and making Absolutely. you feel, I guess, comfortable in a certain way with what she was doing. I think seeing kind of testing a defense system, you know, are you going to go and tell? And if you're not, we'll see how far this goes. Right. So at this point in time, it's fair to say you thought that this was just part of everyday life and that this was normalized. And when the abuse started happening, did you have an understanding that a line had been crossed or was it so blurred that it just sort of seemed a natural progression? As I see it, once the illegal touching began, I absolutely, in my own eight-year-old mind, sensed that, you know, there was a pretty thick line between what had happened before and what was happening now. That being said, I think the disadvantage that I was in was the inability to understand consent, was the inability to understand that this was wrong to the point that it should be reported. And were it to be reported, I would not be the one to, I guess, take the fall for it. And so, as I understand it, what's unique about my situation is the ability that my abuser had to really kind of understand the lay of the land, to understand, yes, the taboo around sexual education in an Orthodox Jewish household. And as a result of that, the perception that I would develop that anything which was happening was automatically my fault. And so when that line was crossed, I absolutely understood that a line had been crossed. But I think the key component is that I thought the line had been crossed and that was my fault. And at the very least, I had to bear 50% of the responsibility for these encounters. And as such, I was never going to tell because of what that would mean for me. And so, yeah, so a line was crossed. And at that point, I think, you know, going back to the grooming conversation, I think that she had detected that I was not speaking up. I was not telling. I was concerned about how I would be perceived in this conversation. And as such, it would go on to continue. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Rabbi, but is it fair to say she sort of took advantage of the culture of your house, of the Orthodox Jewish culture, and she didn't have to threaten you and didn't have to tell you not to tell because she sensed that you automatically wouldn't do it? So uh, to me, I think that is the most vital point to understand around this conversation. And I'm going to jump ahead for a sec, but you know, this was, in my opinion, really one of the watershed moments of the trial. Was asked, you know, point blank on the stand by the prosecutor, were you ever threatened? You know, were you ever warned or admonished? And 
I said no. And I remember, you know, the defense attorney, you know, rejoicing in this answer. And it was crucial for me for the jury to understand how vital that conversation is to, to the entire point. There was no need for threats. There was no need for admonishments and anything of that nature, because I think that my abuser understood the unique context of the situation and realized that I was never going to tell out of my own vested self-interest. I wasn't scared into silence because of my concerns of what would happen to her or she would become upset or anything of the sort. I wasn't going to tell because I was chopped liver if I told something. It was my rear end on the line. And so no, there were no threats. There were no warnings. There were nothing of that sort because frankly, I think it was unnecessary. I think this is so important, just I'll editorialize here for a moment, that when we as prosecutors are assessing cases and learning about the situations, that we take into account each individual situation and find out why it is our victims are not speaking up right away. You had mentioned earlier that you had siblings. I don't know where you fall in the birth order, but did it cross your mind or were you concerned that it was happening to your siblings? Did you ever try and talk to them about it or find out whether or not it was happening to them? It's a great question because I think it gives an opportunity to really kind of pick apart the mind of the eight-year-old or the 10-year-old as the situation develops. So I'm the oldest of six. We are bunched pretty close together, specifically at the top. And I think what's vital for people to understand is that the abuse definitely evolved. And so, you know, it went from, you know, one level of illegal touching to another. And, and as the incidents continued to happen, I guess, you know, just in plain and simple English, they continued to get worse. And as that happened, the level of shame that I was absorbing for each incident was just absolutely off the charts and finding ways to get worse and worse. With that being the case, I think it's vital that people understand that because of the level of toxic shame that I had around the situation, for me, the notion that another child was engaging in that sort of behavior was so impossible, was so out of the question that it was a reality that would have never crossed my mind because from my perspective, these were my actions. You know, this was my problem and other kids didn't do this sort of thing. Other kids weren't as messed up as I was. And so the notion to entertain that somehow, you know, I wonder if my siblings are caught up in this as well, Hells no, pardon my French, because, you know, my siblings are great kids, you know, and if you kind of add the religious component, you know, my siblings know what's right and wrong. You know, my siblings would never engage in this sort of immoral, anti-Jewish behavior, as it were. And so the answer is no, but not just because, oh, gosh, I never thought about it that way. You know, maybe they were cut up in it as well. It was no, because no other children don't do this. No one else does this. No one else is that evil in a certain sense. And so, yeah, that possibility never crossed my mind. When you are going through this during the course of between 8 and 13 when you're in the house and 13 to 18 when you're coming back to visit, ever try to tell anybody or sort of hint at it? I know you've got this shame based on your upbringing and your religious beliefs and the guilt associated with that, but just sort of test the water sort of like in asking for a friend and see what would happen if you did try to tell? No, especially after I left home. And so when I'm here in Salt Lake City, I'm kind of in a bubble. I leave home and I'm attending yeshiva with, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of other young men like myself. And at that point, the token goal of my life is to make sure no one remotely suspects this because I don't know what would happen to me if they found out. And so, you know, not just is it not a partial disclosure or a test the water or an ask for the friend, it is invest every effort that is at your disposal to make sure that nobody 
nobody should ever remotely suspect this. And you live in two worlds. I talked about this, you know, I've talked about this many times. I talked about this at trial. You know, I would come home for a couple of weeks for a school break and there would be a number of incidents during every home visit. And then I literally, I'd go to the airport and I would, you know, swap out one life for the other. And I'd go to the airport and I would have to put on this persona where no one should ever find out about it. And, you know, never give off any just, you know, whiff of suspicion that this is what's going on in my life. It's it's damaging. I got to tell you that, Paul. It, it's a mental, you know, God knows what you do to yourself to, to live in those two worlds as a teen. That was the challenge. I mean, that was the task at hand. And then that's what had to happen. And that's what was going to happen, you know, come come what may. Did you find it affecting other parts of your life, your your school or friendships or eating or other relationships that you had? Did you find it seeping into those things as a result of the massive amount of control you had to show? You know, I'll say this. I was on a TV episode last summer, uh, Lifetime put out a, a special about sexual abuse. And so there was a question put to this panel, you know, what are some warning signs you might see in a child if you're a parent? And so one of the panelists brought up lack of performance in school. So, you know, bad grades, hanging out with the wrong crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And I interjected for a moment, you know, whilst all that's true, I want to provide the counter to that argument. I drowned my trauma in Judaism. I got good grades and I was just, you know, a top of my class student for one reason. And that was to make sure that no one knew what was going on in my life. And so I think that we think about survivors of, of child sexual abuse, you know, as kind of the downtrodden and the kids who are struggling and, you know, the ones who have an early proclivity to, you know, drinking and drugs and inappropriate sex. And all that is true. There's a lot of truth to that. I think it's also important that we realize that some kids try to drown their problems in other substances, in healthy substances. And these are kids who are, you know, putting all of their energies into sports or academics, all because they're running from themselves and they're hiding from themselves. And so, yeah, it impacted my relationships. It impacted my performance. I was pushing myself to the umpteenth degree to succeed and to bury, you know, what was really going on. And you know what? That's just as unhealthy as if I was developing an unhealthy drinking habit at 16. And I think that the trauma you put yourself through is, is equally damaging. Well, I think it's the same mechanism, but a different outcome in terms of rather than manifesting in itself in a eating disorder or something like that, it's manifesting itself in academic high achievement. Um, if I may, I want to edit, editorialize here just for a second. And I talk about this a lot because of my experience through the justice system. I often say to victims and witnesses that I'm working with that defense attorneys have never identified who is the perfect victim. Because if you have someone who's the survivor of child sexual abuse and they have kind of gone off that road and they are, you know, drinking and drugs and God knows what, and then they report, what's the immediate pivot? You know, you can't take the credibility of this person. You know, they've been in rehab and they're using and they're drinking. I go to trial and what's the narrative of the defense attorney? You know, look at him. He's been so successful in life. He was an ordained rabbi at 22. What would you prefer I was? Would you prefer that I was struggling in life? Because if I was struggling in life, against me too. And so it's so vital that we, you know, we give witnesses and victims the abilities to be themselves because however they're going to show up in the courtroom, it's going to be used against them. If they're struggling, that's no good. If they're successful, that's no good. You know, you're never going to make these guys happy. So just embrace being a victim for who you are. You've struggled. You've drowned your sorrows in this, that, or the other. That's great. You know, you are doing the best job at showing up for yourself. And if someone's going to have a problem with it, they're going to have a problem with it regardless. And I think that's so important for us as prosecutors to keep in mind, Rabbi, 
as a wise mentor once taught me, you have to embrace the facts to understand that these aren't cookie cutter cases. But let me turn now and ask you to describe how the abuse in your case ended and how you came to feel that you wanted to disclose it. I'll cram five years of a history into one answer. So the abuse ended right after 18. At that point, most of us, me and my siblings, were out of the house in school. And so there was no need for her anymore. My family, I guess, let her go after 10 years on the most peaceful and amicable of terms. And, you know, we were going to invite her to every wedding and stay in touch, blah, blah, blah. Everything was great. At that point, it stopped happening. And so as I often like to think about it, you know, at that point, as I see it, that's where her actions stopped and my actions began. And, and I had the ability to kind of step outside the bubble of the continuous abuse and really try to determine how I was going to process it. And as far as I was concerned, I was going to keep on keeping on. You know, the status quo had served me well to that point of, you know, I will take this to the grave with me. This is just, you know, the way it's going to be. I did become an ordained rabbi. I got married. For me, obviously, given the nature of my community, you know, no premarital sex, you know, no so much as a girlfriend before marriage. And so getting married for me was something which I was extremely hopeful towards. You know, I was going to have a healthy sexual relationship and hopefully that would go a long way towards kind of getting the bad taste out of my mouth. It would be a cleanser in that sense. Turns out it's not how marriage works. You bring sexual trauma into a marriage. The marriage does not have this magical way of just kind of expunging it from your record. And one might make the argument that it actually works the other way. And I struggled through the first year, year and a half of marriage. About 18 months after we were married, my wife and I were blessed with our first child. And I think when I look back on this strictly from an emotional perspective, becoming a dad was kind of something which pushed me over the edge. You know, it's one of those moments that I look back on and, you know, where, where things really began to just spiral mentally and emotionally. It was that moment. And I often talk about, you know, that moment when you hold your son for the first time and you kind of embrace being a dad. And there's that moment of eye contact between, you know, parent and newborn. And I remember that moment very, very clearly. And I remember this baby looking up at me and just feeling internally like the biggest failure in the world, you know, and, and this was a child who was going to need, this is, you know, this was a boy and I was going to be, you know, this, this boy's dad. And I was going to be the dad, or this boy needed the dad, I should say, who could walk on water and dunk a basketball and throw a football 80 yards in the air. And, and I was just a disaster of a human being. I was a disappointment and I was not the dad that this boy deserved. He deserved to have, you know, the father that every boy deserves. And that wasn't going to be me. And I, I think I really emotionally hit a dark place after that. And to the point that about five months later, I was called into, I guess, an intervention of sorts between my parents and my wife and myself. And they sat me down and they said, you are, you are not yourself, my man. Something is up. Something really serious is up. And we would like you to go to therapy. We'd like you to go to someone and just find out what the heck is going on. I think when, you know, everyone had that conversation, they envisioned, you know, three or four visits and you know, have a clean bill of health and no one really realized where we'd be six years later, but go to therapy and talk it out with somebody and get over it. And I wasn't very excited about it, but they weren't really asking for my input. This was more of an order. And so I went to therapy and in therapy that first time I disclosed uh, that first appointment. So one key moment that I think is important to, you know, just kind of put out there for context. When I was 20, I broke my leg. I was confined to a bed for six weeks. And I began binge watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. If you are a prosecutor in SVU, all the power to you because you changed my life. 
and there's this episode with Benson and Stabler, and they have this 16-year-old who is just kind of out of control, and there's this penultimate moment in the episode in Stabler's office where the mom tells the two detectives that this kid's nanny had been inappropriate with him, and as such, he's struggling in life as a result of that. And I remember you know, pausing the episode and literally sitting up straight in bed and being like, what? The insinuation is that this young boy was sexually abused by his caregiver, and that makes no sense. And as far as I'm concerned, that's factually wrong. I'm sorry, they're wrong on the facts. SVU got this wrong. You know, you can't have a boy who's sexually abused by his babysitter. It doesn't work like that. And I sat on that information ultimately for, for three, four years until I was in therapy. And it was that episode, it was that TV episode that I think first put the nugget into my head that, you know, perhaps you were sexually abused. And ultimately, I sat down in a therapist's office and I just said to him, you know, I think that the words are, are so powerful. I said, I think I was sexually abused as a kid. You know, it wasn't, you know, I'm here to talk to you about the abuse. In my mind, it, it wasn't even a reality that it for sure happened. And we began to talk and talk and talk and talk. And, and it all kind of went on from there. So that therapy session was the first one that you had gone to and you disclosed at the first therapy session. I did. How long after that, then, do you make the decision to go to law enforcement and disclose even further? It's one thing to be in therapy where it's confidential and nobody else has to find out about it. It's another thing when you go to law enforcement and then the whole world is going to find out about it, essentially. So I would kind of break it down chronologically like this. The first six months for me of a very intensive therapy were centered around one key reality. You are the victim of a crime, right? Which was kind of the, the phraseology that we used to move away from the shame. So you've been living in your head for Lord knows how long that this is your fault and you're to blame. Let's stop thinking like that. And if we are removing all the shame and the blame from you, we need to place that somewhere else. And it's important for us to understand that this is a crime. You are the victim of a crime. If somebody is, you know, mugged in an alleyway, they're not going to think to themselves, you know, oh, well, that was partially my bad. You know, they're the victim of a crime. You need to think about this the same way. It took a while. It takes a while to deprogram your way of thinking. It takes a while to move away from unhealthy thought processes. After those first I don't know, six to eight months, hang on a second. If I'm the victim of a crime, so, you know, don't the police need to get involved? Like, you know, can I, can I tell someone? And so, you know, we began to have that conversation. And for me, being where I was in life, reporting to law enforcement was a non-starter. And to your point, Paul, because I come from a community where this is just not what we talk about. It's just not what we do. It's not the way we handle our business. And I was not, I mean, as I told my therapist a million times in therapy, I was not going to become the zippo of the guy who was sexually abused. So, you know, if I could go to law enforcement and, you know, be John Doe or victim one, you know, I don't think that's an option. So I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. At this point, we're in late 2017 and the Me Too movement happens. And I know that's a generalization, maybe an oversimplification, but people I know in my community, predominantly women, granted, but people I know are going on Facebook and talking about the fact that they were the victim of one or two or 10 episodes of sexual violence and their own that. And they're embracing that to a certain extent. And they are not hiding from that anymore. And I think that as society begins to view the issue differently, it has a cumulative effect on everybody. And I start thinking about the issue differently. And so I think my therapist sensed that, you know, we're talking about that. And his attitude is, 
why don't you find out what your options are? He encouraged me strongly, find out what your options are. And it took a the most random of lunches with a friend of mine who I would find out mid-conversation. Knew he was a practicing attorney. I found out he was a former prosecutor. And you know, you had asked earlier, Paul, about you know asking for a friend. And I sat down at that lunch. I was like, hey, guy, got to ask you a question. Said, you know, I'm a rabbi in my community. Someone's coming to me for counseling. And I told this guy my entire story asking for a friend. And I said, you know, if he wants to file a police report, does that become public knowledge? I'll never forget. My friend looks at me and says, tell your, my, my friend, the lawyer, looks at me and says, tell your friend he's a moron. Like, no, you know, when you file a police report, it's not public knowledge. It's your friend's an idiot. He should call the police. And so the next day I did. January 30th, 2018, I cold called the non-emergency number for SLCPD and I filed a police report. So before you take that step, do you prepare your family for this or is this something you do on your own? I told nobody. At this point, when I make that phone call, there are exactly four human beings in the world who know about what happened to me. My wife, my mom, my dad, my therapist. I made the call to SLCPD strictly so that I would feel better about myself. And, you know, I would tell myself, I did it, nothing happened. But you know what? I did it. I checked that box. In my mind, the odds of something coming of that phone call were less than my winning the Powerball. You know, I did it. I bought a ticket. Nothing happened. I called SLCPD. Nothing happened, but I did it. So good for me. Okay. So what happens when you call SLPD? I called. I spoke to a lovely young woman who answered the phone and spoke to her for about 15 minutes, gave her very basic parameters of the conversation. At this, so this is 24 hours after I have lunch with my friend, the prosecutor. At this point, I'm so distrusting of the whole situation that we finished the call. She said, I'd like to pass on your information to a detective who can, you know, give you a follow-up call. Can I give, can I take down your name and number? And I said, would it be okay if I gave you a fake name? Like I'm this concerned about, you know, my identity being leaked. And so she says, yeah, sure. You know, do what you want. So I gave her a fake name, gave her a fake name and my cell phone number. And about an hour later, I got a call back from an officer on duty who was kind of, you know, farming out these calls to whoever, wherever it needed to go. I think we spoke for about a half hour. You know, we got into a little bit more detail around the situation. And he says to me, uh, okay, you know, I'm going to pass this along to a detective at sex crimes. He'll be in touch soon. And the detective from sex crimes called me back within 48 hours. And he said to me, you know, would you be willing to come downtown for an interview? And I said, yeah, you know, I will go downtown. I think, and that's when I told my parents and I went downtown for an interview. I remember walking into the building and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is such a bad idea. This is such a bad idea. And at that point they had my real name. And I remember thinking to myself, so I'm going to walk in. The, the public safety building is this huge complex downtown. And I'm going to walk in. Who am I supposed to identify myself to? And, by, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm, this is going to be like an airport and I'm going to walk in and there's going to be this voice over the intercom, you know, Zipple with the sexual abuse case, please report to room. I'm like, what the heck is going to happen here? And I'll never forget, I walked in. And as I walked into the building, the detective saw me coming from the outside. And he just gave me a wink and just, you know, ushered me straight into an interview room. And, you know, that whole spectacle was avoided that I had been, you know, agonizing about. So when you met the detective and he brought you into the interview room to speak with him, first, did he speak to you by himself or was there another detective there? Spoken by himself, obviously male detective, which was a real comfort now, just given the nature of the case. I'll never forget, we sat down 
in an interview room and, you know, I, can I, is it okay if I record and take some notes? Sure. And I said to him, I said, I just want to kind of give you context for this conversation. I'm be very honest with you. I'm going to try and do this. I'm going to try and talk. I'm actually convinced there's a part of me that believes that at some point during this conversation, you are going to walk across the room, you know, get to the other side of this little table and arrest me for some of the things that I'm going to talk to you about. You know, I've been in therapy for two years and I'm doing this. It's important that you know my state of mind walking into this room. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and says, okay, cool. Like, you know, let's see where we get. And I think it was vital. He didn't try to talk me off that ledge. No, I promise. I'm like, he's like he gave me space to be. He gave me space to deal with this at my own pace as I wanted. And we talked. We talked for an hour and 45 minutes, almost two hours. And I have to say, to his credit, he created just a safe, welcoming environment for me to talk and talk and talk and talk. So as a detective, making you feel comfortable, giving you that space was important to you to be able to disclose what you needed to talk about. I wish every victim of any crime, specifically sex crimes, to be able to work with a detective like Detective Blue from SLCPD that I worked with. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been on the other end of this equation now more times than I could have ever imagined. And I can identify now so many tools that he had used, just the empathetic listening and the non-judgmentalism and the ability to kind of let the conversation go. And he had follow-up questions and, you know, he asked them the right way. He asked them in a sensitive way just set the stage for such an open conversation. It was by the book, but it was so professionally well done. At the end of that conversation, what does he tell you is the next steps? Does he tell you he's going to talk to a prosecutor? Does he tell you he's going to talk to a boss? How is he maintaining contact with you? And is there a roadmap that's sort of given to you about the process? So during the course of this interview, he ascertains, you know, respectfully, of course, but he ascertains Two, I guess, key components. Number one, there's not a drop of forensic evidence. There's no bloody shirt. There's no diary. There's no journal. There are no previous disclosures that he can corroborate, and there are no eyewitnesses. And he ascertains that very sensitively without making me feel like I'm an idiot for not, you know, having journaled this stuff as a kid. We finished conversation. He says to me, he says, I want to tell you something important. Number one, most importantly, I believe you. Everything that you said to me in this room today, I believe you. That being said, I want you to understand that from a prosecutorial perspective, from, from an investigative perspective, there's not a lot to go on here. So he says, I can promise you one thing. I can promise you, uh, at that point, my abuser was living out of state. He says, I, or someone from this office, or someone from local PD in Glendale, Arizona, will go to your abuser's house and talk to her about the conversation that we had today. She will be asked for comment about the conversation that we had. Now, she may well deny it. And if she does, there's not a lot that we can do to contradict that denial. But that was less relevant than someone will talk to her. There will be a follow-up investigation. To me, that's all I wanted to hear. And I remember vividly walking out of the building and calling my wife. And I said to her, I said, you know, if I die today, I would die a happy man because accountability, you know. And she can go and she can lie bald-facedly to the police. I don't care. Someone's going to sit down with her in her kitchen and say, hey, did you sexually abuse a kid for a very long time, and let her answer to that question what she wants. But someone will ask her that. Law enforcement will ask her that. And he said, we'll be in touch. This was early February. I didn't hear from him until the last week of March. He calls me one day out of the blue, and he says to me, I'm really sorry I got called away on another case. But he says, you know, right now, this week, your case is kind of at the top of my list. And my sergeant 
has suggested in a situation like yours to set up a pretextual phone call. Would you feel comfortable with that? And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, like, why not? You know, I haven't seen this woman in a very long time. It's not like we have a relationship that I stand to jeopardize. Sure. So, you know, would you come in tomorrow morning at 1030 and do a pretextual phone call? So I said, sure. Came the next morning. They had a number for her in Arizona. We called the number. It rang and rang and rang. And we called twice. No answer. And so I turned to them and I said, look, I'm going to be honest. I know that she's on Facebook. I know that she's active on Facebook. Would you feel comfortable if I sent her a Facebook message, asked her for a cell phone number? So I text her. I sent her a Facebook message, asked her for her number. And at that point, they're like, okay, we're not going to sit here waiting a whole day. You know, go, go do your thing, my man. And if she ever writes back, just call us back. And I had just gotten to my car and she wrote me back. She sent me her cell phone number. It turns out she was out of state. She was actually in Utah while all this was going on. We were calling a landline in Arizona. And I went back and we set up the call and we talked. We talked for 45 minutes. And I had been working with the detectives beforehand that, you know, the goal of a pretextual phone call ultimately is a non-denial. And it got a lot worse than a non-denial. We talked about it pretty openly for a very long time. And it was insane. I mean, she implicated herself in every incident that I brought up. And she added her own, you know, memories that she had of the situation. And we talked and talked and talked. And, and after 45 minutes, we hung up. And as I remember it, all, all hell just came crashing down around me. And as I think about it, you know, from more from an emotional perspective, I had almost wanted it to fail. I had almost wanted the phone call to go bad because that phone call gave me verification beyond any sort of denial that this had happened to me exactly as I remembered it. And I was almost hoping for, you know, the cop to kick me out of the building and be like, you're full of it. This never happened. Like, you know, this is, this is all a bunch. Of, and I can go back to my therapist and say, see, I was right. This is all my fault that it never happened. And that's not what was happening. This was happening. This was for real. And that's where we were. Rabbi, I wonder if you could give us some more details about this phone call. I mean, how it was set up and what the pretext was for the call and, and, and what the conversation was like. Before the phone call, when he had called me on Monday, the day before, I had said to him, I said, so, you know, we're talking about a pretextual phone call. What's the pretext? Right. I haven't spoken to her in Lord knows how long. So he says to me, he says, you know, why don't you call her and tell her you're in therapy and you know, you're struggling with these incidents and you're trying to get closure. So I said to him, and this would be a conversation that I would have to relive in court in vivid detail. I said, is it okay for me to lie on the call? And he says, yes. And I said, if I may, I'd like to suggest a different approach. For years, every single episode of sexual abuse had been accompanied by this mantra, by this narrative that all of these things were being done to make me a better husband one day. And it was about kind of creating this unique bond between me and her, which would then serve me later in life, which would make me a better person. And only she could do this for me. I suggested to the detective that we revisit that. I wanted to call her up and be like, you know, this is, I haven't told anybody about it. You know, this is between me and you, but you know, I'm married. She knew that I was married. She had been invited to my wedding. Thankfully she didn't come, but you know, I'm now married and being with my wife is not like being with you. And I wanted to recreate that bond, recreate that space. I felt like if I was to be, you know, accusatory in any way, if she wouldn't respond well to that and said, I wanted to kind of recreate that connection that I think pedophiles think they're creating with their victims. And that's exactly what happened. I approached it from that mentality. And I, you know, I told her I was calling her for her, you know, sage advice and her counsel on, on a distressing matter. And 
she went with it, you know, and talked about the incidents that had happened and how, you know, I was struggling to implement those now and it worked. You know, I think your skill at reading people and human nature, I think, really was valuable there. Your ability to sort of get to the crux of the relationship, I think, is what made that call a success. That's really a tribute to you and the way that you were able to come to terms with it. I appreciate that. I think it's important to add. I would credit that to my therapist. And I think that it's interesting because in a certain sense, as the years went on in therapy, I would become more upset that she lied to me than that she abused me. Right. You know, you want to hurt me, hurt me, but don't feed me this nonsense about this better husband thing, you know? And to me, that was almost the justice that I wanted more than anything is, you know, yes, you did this, but more importantly, you lied about it. You know, you fed me this story for a decade. And so for me, being able to kind of revisit that conversation, that was almost more justice than anything that would happen throughout this entire process is, you know, remember we had these conversations. I know you're full of crap with all due respect, you know, pardon my French, but you know, that for me was really kind of, that was justice. Let me move, if I can, Rabbi, just a little bit to the trial itself. You've had this confrontation with her. The investigation as a result of this call, I imagine, is what really triggers the arrest. And now you have to go through the criminal justice system. Did you have to testify more than once at more than one proceeding, a grand jury or a preliminary hearing as well as the trial? So I testified twice. Prelim was in February of 2019. That was the first time I testified. That was the first time that I was you know, connected to the story in any sense. The story was sensational. The arrest was sensational. My abuser would be arrested on suspicion of 130 counts of sexual abuse of a child. That's a pretty big number, pretty unusual number. And so the case was a very high profile case before I was even associated with it, you know, was a token victim. And so I testified at that hearing and attached myself to that case forever. And then I would testify that it would be a four day jury trial in November of 2019, which obviously was, was, you know, a pretty big part of that. But yeah, there were two, the preliminary hearing, I think it was about a 35 minute, you know, time on the stand. The trial was about a day and a half. When you testified at trial or at the preliminary hearing, was the defendant in court both times? She was, yes. And I did the whole, you know, could you point out the defendant for the record? I, I did. Okay. And what was that like for you, seeing her again after all that time, being asked to identify her? So I'll answer that with a brief introduction. I made the decision that I wanted to be part of this process from beginning to end. And, you know, the prosecutor and I developed a pretty special relationship in that sense. And she realized that I was going to be a pretty active part of the case. and so. As a result of that, I wanted to be in court by her initial appearance. Her initial appearance was on a motion calendar, and everybody's like, what? don't go to court. You know, first of all, there'll be 120 people in the courtroom. It's, you know, it's a zoo, and you know, her time in the sun will be all of 30 seconds long, and the judge will literally ask her if she understands the nature of the charges against her, and if she has an attorney, and she'll say yes, and that'll be all, why, why, don't do that. I could be an obstinate one sometimes, and I went. And for me, the reason why I wanted to go was because I needed to make eye contact with her. From a therapeutic perspective, you know, from a whole number, I needed to see her in all this in the flesh. And to be honest, as much as I wanted to do that, part of me was terrified that I would go to court and have that eye contact with her and she would be in court and she would just be in pieces and in tears and I would feel extremely guilty. That was not the case. I went to court for the initial appearance and she was there with her entire family giving off this aura of this is just one big inconvenience. Like, you know, what the heck? I don't even know why I'm here. And seeing her in that mindset, that gave me 
the motivation to see this through to the end, come what may. And then this was going to be a long process and a grueling process. But that lack of accountability, that pushed me to go on. And so, yes, I sat in the box at the preliminary hearing and I pointed her out for the record and I could not have been prouder to do it. And I could not have been more motivated to do it. I was shaking like a leaf from testifying and having to talk about those incidents. But of all the moments on the stand, you know, could you identify the person you're describing for the record? That was the easy part. Can you tell us a little bit about what the defense strategy was? I mean, here they have you who is an ordained rabbi. Your story is corroborated by a controlled phone call in the defendant's own words. What's the defense strategy and what's your cross-examination like? There was one key point that I think I've failed to mention you know, to this point, which I think has been part of the abuse process, the therapeutic process, and ultimately the law enforcement process. And that is that as I grew older, I initiated a number of these encounters. And I think that as any therapist or anyone who understands the situation couldn't go on to explain, you know, yes, that's why these crimes are so heinous is because it, it really completely warps the, the lifestyle and the perception of a normal child. So, you know, for me, how that would be portrayed or how that would be understood, I understand that from a, from a criminal standpoint, you know, am I on the hook? For the incidents where I may have initiated it. And obviously, I've been given to understand therapeutically, legally, the answer is a resounding no. That was a large part of the defense strategy, which they kind of almost abandoned mid-trial because there was this constant harping on the fact that, well, that's actually not a defense, but you know, let's move along. So they couldn't deny that the incidents had happened because you have these admissions on a controlled phone call and consent shouldn't really be a matter in the case because you know the, the victim is a child. They went to the extreme and they argued that I was the aggressor. Right after opening statements, the prosecutor made a motion to the judge that she had picked up on the fact that during opening arguments, the defense attorney had used my behaviors, my mindsets, my attitudes a number of times during opening arguments. And she just wanted to point out that as a matter of law and this is a matter of public policy, we cannot discuss the victim of the, the consent of a child who's under 18 and what he was thinking and all that is completely irrelevant in a court of law. And the judge turns to the defense attorneys like I'm inclined to agree with Miss Kelly. And the defense attorney looks her straight in the eye and says, you know, Your Honor, we're actually not arguing consent. We're arguing that the child over here is the aggressor. And as such, our client's state of mind, you know, could not have been to sexually gratify a child because she was being preyed upon by the alleged victim in this case. And I think at that moment, the air kind of goes out of the courtroom. Everyone's like, you know, judge, prosecutor, myself, everyone's like, what? Are we going to do this? Like, we're actually going to do the eight-year-old made me do it card? And they did. They actually did. That was the meat and potatoes of their strategy. It's funny, this is the first time I've spoken about it just because of, you know, where things are in the process. My abuser's appeal was filed just before the holidays. And it's pretty big, pretty thick. But a, a key part of the appeal, and the appellate attorneys are not her trial attorneys, and a key part of the appeal is, I'm going to put this in my own words, that was the single most boneheaded defense anyone has ever tried. You know, and part of arguing in effective counsel is you people made the dumbest argument that you could possibly make in a trial of this nature where the crux of the issue is credibility. You know, you guys literally argued the child preyed upon the adult. That doesn't really work. But that's what they went with. It was disgusting. It was offensive. It was re-traumatizing. It was, I think, everything that we're concerned about doing to victims, you know, on the stand and putting them through trial. It was that and then some. So, Rabbi, did the prosecution in your case call any experts, uh, for example, to help the jury understand uh, behaviors of a victim of child sexual abuse? 
So the prosecutor made uh, what in my mind is a brilliant decision. She was going to call my mom. My mom was going to be called in the case because she was on the record having said to the detective that when I had initially disclosed to my parents, quote, they reacted with disbelief. The defense could not have been happier. You know, this was, here it is, even his parents don't believe him. And, and so my mom was going to be called to talk about what does it mean for a parent to react with disbelief? You know, disbelief does not mean denial. Disbelief means I don't want to believe it's true. Prosecutor made the brilliant decision of actually calling my mom before she called me in the case. And that was the crux of the case. It was my mother, then me, and then the detective. Those were the state's only witnesses. And she had my mom up there on the stand for about an hour and a half to really set the table of what it was like conducting and living and working in an orthodox household. Obviously, the key point of the cases we've talked about earlier in this conversation was to understand or to be aware of the fact that my abuser was well aware of the intricacies of working in an Orthodox Jewish household. She knew well that these things beyond them being illegal were immoral and the shame that it would cause and, and how abhorrent those behaviors were. So the state didn't call an expert. They put my mom up there. And I, and I think in a certain sense, you know, my mom is, you know, the best expert witness that you could have onto the household that she, you know, ran and that the defendant worked in. And I think it was a phenomenal strategy because the prosecutor realized that the jury is going to be encountering a case which is highly unusual in their mind. Obviously, none of the jurors were Orthodox Jews. And so, you know, understanding the boundaries around physical touch and understanding a lot of the intricacies of the household, they needed someone to really set the table for them. And I think that, you know, the way that the prosecutor guided that conversation between her and my mom was absolutely phenomenal. In every trial like this, the victims have to talk about incredibly private, personal things about their body, what was done to them. Sometimes, not in your case, but in another case, there are forensic exams that are done. Can you just tell a little bit about your experience of testifying about these topics? What made it possible? What made it less difficult? What made you able to do it? Was there things that the prosecutor did or things that the detective did or maybe a therapist did that helped you? be able to discuss these things? For me, when I think about that, over the course of the police investigation, the detective was very content to allow most of the conversation to involve insinuations and, and pseudonyms and the like. And there, there was a point in the conversation where I had to you know, spell out what was what in terms of body parts. I will never forget. So my abuser was arrested on suspicion of 130 counts. He was charged two days later on with seven felonies, five firsts, two seconds. I was out of town. When the arrest happened and the charging documents were filed, and I remember reading the charging documents were filed, I'm seeing, and you know, I'll be explicit here, seeing the word penis in a newspaper article about the case. You know, charging documents include blah, 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 and, and the word is kind of there. And I remember seeing that in print, and I remember the word jumping off my phone screen and just slapping me across the face. And I remember swearing to myself at that moment that that penis was never going to be mine. I was never going to be associated with this case because, you know, we talk about sexual abuse and generalities, you know, oh, he was abused. You can go leave it to your imagination what happened, you know, seeing that in print. And there was a large acclimation process having to be prepared to identify myself with the case. Both by the prelim and during trial, I had to say, say exactly what happened, you know, saying where she made me touch her and saying where she touched me. And not so much by the prelim, I remember the energy in the courtroom, just the, the temperature in the room goes down about 15 degrees when someone says that word on the stand. You know, she touched my penis. And I think that's powerful because 
I think it reinforces to people that, you know, we are talking about serious crimes. The level of uncomfortability that a witness displays on the stand having to say that and the visible discomfort on their face is powerful, in my opinion. And so, you know, you talk about preparing myself for that moment. There's nothing I think a witness can do to prepare themselves for that moment. And I think that that authenticity and that vulnerability and the level of raw emotion shared in that moment is powerful. I think a jury understands that. I think everyone in the courtroom understands that, you know, I'm not having fun up here, right? And this is not pleasant for me to talk about. And it's going to kill me to say this, but I'm going to say it because that's what I got to do. But I think that the realness of that moment is such a powerful tool. And I felt that in my case, you know, I wanted to bury myself in that moment having to do it. And I think that people pick up on that sentiment and it's ultimately it's helpful in, in the larger sense. Rabbi, can you talk a bit about anything that may have impacted you as someone who had to testify about being sexually abused, about being a victim who went through the criminal process? Are there things that you took away that might help other victims and, and help prosecutors who are preparing victims for court? So it's become such a focal point of the work I get to do. And the prosecutor that I worked with created or is working on creating here at the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office a peer support group to bring in witnesses who had previously testified to work with witnesses who are in the pipeline to testify. And I got to work with some incredibly brave young men and women who are being prepared to testify in, in trials of this nature. And it is the single most important piece of advice that I give them. Don't try to be anything else but what you are. If you're going to be nervous in the courtroom that morning, that is exactly what the jury expects you to be. And I think it's something which we really need to embrace when working with victims is the understanding, you know, juries are human beings. I think we sometimes don't expect jurors to understand certain realities. A key point in my case was a delayed disclosure. So it took you 20 years. Why did it take you 20 years to talk? And my answer to that, you know, very defiantly was, I didn't want to talk about it, you know, and I didn't say this on the stand, but I would venture to guess that if we polled every single human being in this courtroom, prosecutor, defense attorney, juror, judge, bailiff, and everybody else, is there something in your life that you don't feel comfortable talking about? Is there an episode that happened to you you'd rather not talk about it? Everyone, everyone would have an episode of that nature. And so, you know, when there are certain parts of witnesses' lives that they feel they're going to be, you know, attacked on on the stand, you know, why did it take you so long to disclose? You know, why are you so nervous today? why am I so nervous? Today? Can you imagine why I'm so nervous today? Because I've got to talk about the most traumatic experiences of my life. I didn't want to talk about this because it brought me tremendous shame and anxiety. You know, these are regular human emotions. And I think the greatest empowerment we can give to our witnesses is get up there and be normal, be a normal human, because you know who else are normal human beings? Jurors are normal human beings. And I think defense attorneys like to create these mythical creatures and compare victims to mythical creatures. You know, the perfect victim would not have waited a year to report. Well, get, well you know what? Good for him. Because I'm not him. I'm a human being. And I think the jurors can understand that. And I think anybody, any sane human being can understand that. And so I work with witnesses. And, and the greatest piece of advice that I can give them is just be yourself. Just be yourself. And your story and all of its authenticity, warts and all, is so beautiful and so profound. And the jury will pick up on that. And just to sort of wrap that up, is that the same or similar advice you give to detectives and to prosecutors who are working with these victims as well? Or is there something else you'd want them to know? I think that the key point that I share with both detectives and more importantly with prosecutors is when working with witnesses, reinforce to them that they did everything right, right? And you know what? There might be certain steps they took along the road 
that might make your case more difficult. You know, no one's going to deny that. But when working with them, it's, it's vital that they understand that the steps they took in getting here today, they did everything right. I think that's what we need to do as a society if we want to encourage more reporting. I think that sadly, we know way too many stories of people who went through the system and, you know, just had negative experience piled on top of negative experience. And for me, a key part of my story is we got a guilty verdict and excuse my abusers doing 25 years to life. And that's not what helped me find justice. What helped me find justice was working with an incredible team that supported me and allowed me to feel like I was taking the steps necessary to fight for myself and to pursue some sort of correction the way I saw fit. And I think that that's what we need to do with witnesses. And obviously, everyone in the system is worried about a certain outcome. And sure, you know, victims do want a certain outcome. But giving victims the ability to feel throughout their experience in the system that they are being celebrated on a certain level. I know it's a weird word to use, but I believe in that they're being celebrated, they're being commended, they're being reminded that they did everything right throughout this process. That is how we help victims find justice. It's how we help victims find closure and use this system to build them up instead of tear them down. So it sounds like the police and the prosecutor being honest and standing with you and believing in you really helped you through this. It sure did. Yeah. I had to have a very awkward conversation. The first conversation that I had with the prosecutor was, so my abuser was arrested. The big number was 130. And she calls me up and says, okay, you know, we're charging her with seven felonies. And in that moment, I remember the, every, the lights went out. And I was like, 130 down to, what do you think? 123 events didn't happen? And, you know, and, and she had to explain, you know, there is about what we think happened. There's about how we're going to support you in this process. And then there is our efforts to get a guilty verdict. And in the pursuit of that, we're charging her with the seven episodes that, you know, we have the best proofs for, we can make the best argument for. But, you know, regardless of what it's going to say on the charging document and regardless of how trial is going to go, this office stands with you. We know exactly what happened to you. And at the end of the day, I think that victims are going to live with the totality of their experiences far more than they will with, with a jury verdict. And I think that's really the key component. Rabbi, I think that's a great way to end our discussion. And I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your story today. It's so valuable to learn from the experiences of survivors so that we can do a better job of protecting victims and seeking justice. And I want to thank you for your bravery and your powerful advocacy that you do on behalf of victims. So, Rabbi, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you.